Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy, and today I have the pleasure of being with Jeremy Suri, my friend and colleague, uh, who's the Mac Brown uh, Professor of Leadership at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and also Distinguished Professor of History here at the University of Texas. And we're going to be talking about his brand new book, one of many that he's written, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Peniel. And, you know, this book is, I think, a truly exceptional book that really makes an argument about um, why, when we think about the chief executive in the age of not just this current um, president, but when we think right. about Obama, we think about um, Clinton, Bush, uh, both Bushes, Reagan, why the office has grown exponentially. Yes. You know, you take us all the way back to the founders, to yes. the present, and it's become too big of an office for for one person. Yes. And I want us to talk about that, and I want us to talk about the way in which historically that office has really shaped American race relations yes. in a big, big way, both through sins of omission and really positive acts of commission. Yes. Um, yes. When we think about somebody like LBJ yes. and we think about um, Barack Obama, uh, when we think about um, John F. Kennedy, yes. uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So uh, first, when you think about this notion of the impossible presidency, what makes it so impossible? Well, I think one of the things that makes it so impossible is implied in your excellent question. Uh, presidents have an obligation, it's, it's there from the founding, to actually unite the country. If there's one expectation, it's that this individual is not simply going to speak to the people who happen to vote for him or the people who happen to agree with him, but actually serve the role that monarchs were supposed to role with, uh, serve, which is to actually bring different parties together and make them feel a common America. And that becomes particularly difficult as we become a more diverse society. Uh, the office is contemplated for a society of largely white planters uh, with uh, diversity, but diversity that's held in non-citizenship roles mm -hmm. at the time. As the franchise broadens, and that's, that's a progressive element of our history, as more groups become part of the American story and force their way into the American story, presidents have a larger community that they have to try to unite. And someone like an Abraham Lincoln invents a new language for that. Franklin Roosevelt invents a whole new set of institutions to do that. The way to think about the New Deal, I think, is the president really trying to bring in African-Americans, to bring in labor, to bring in Jewish citizens and others as part as part of his purview as president. Uh, but as we become more diverse and as the claims made by different groups become more significant and important, it's harder and harder. It takes more skills to do that. And too often, uh, the act of getting into office uh, what you have to do to get elected makes it very hard to then go back and build those bridges that you had to burn to get elected in the first place. I want you to talk about Andrew Jackson because you have a great discussion in this book about Andrew Jackson. And in a lot of ways, Andrew Jackson talked about race, but he's really talking about um, white men. Yes. And excluded white men. So way before 
after the 2016 election, we had Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders say, hey, the Democratic Party doesn't know how to talk to white men, especially the white working class. But Andrew Jackson did know how to talk to them. And what's so significant about Andrew Jackson? Well, Andrew Jackson uh, really saw his role as giving voice to those white men who were not given voice by the elite Virginia planters and the elite Boston Brahmins and others. And so it was an anti-elitism and it was very much tied to the land. He himself came from uh, a poor farming family. He had moved west from the Carolinas to Tennessee seeking land. It's very much the Frederick Jackson Turner story. And he's giving voice to those, not like Jefferson, who have large plantations that they're comfortable on, but those who are seeking new land and seeking opportunity. And that's why Indians really become the other. They become the enemy because they're the ones on the land that have to be pushed off. Uh, Jackson is a proponent of slavery, but slavery is a means to an end for him. It's really getting access to the land that's most significant and preserving what he sees as an American space. Um, I, I do think it's a strange thing for people to say that the Democratic Party at any time doesn't speak to white men. Uh, American politics have always spoken to white men. They're the ones who, and I try to make this point in the book, throughout our history have populated the presidency, and uh, with one exception, right, yes. and have chosen our presidents. It's more which white men have they spoken to. And the most effective leaders, and this becomes harder and harder over time, are able to bring together different groups of white men and other non-white men to form a more united governing coalition. And that leads me to Abraham Lincoln, because uh, Abraham Lincoln is such an important president and probably the president who's been written about the most Mm -hmm. um, in American history. I think so, yeah. Um, And you talk about Lincoln and what Lincoln did, and he did so many different things um, and expanded the powers of the presidency uh, in the context of the Civil War, right? And obviously, I would argue the two most important things are the end of racial slavery and the fact that a new American republic is born out of the Civil War. So I want you to talk about Lincoln and race and democracy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think Lincoln, in addition to the brilliant things you've said, I think Lincoln also is one of the most innovative thinkers about uh, race and democracy in his time. He's not free of racial prejudice by any means, but he's trying to find a way, not simply of thinking about a post-slave society, Mm -hmm. but thinking about a society where African-American, particularly African-American men, are contributors to a larger republic. Because for Lincoln, at the core of democracy is opportunity, Mm -hmm. and opportunity for economic advancement. Lincoln, if if, if Jackson is the poor landed uh, farmer looking for more land from which to get value, Lincoln is the poor border state boy who has no land, nothing. Right, He grows up in a state where sources of wealth are owning slaves, part of Kentucky, or owning land. He has neither of those things. Mm. He's a true capitalist. He believes that democracy and opportunity are tied to creating economic means for earning a living. And so his vision of America uh, is a vision where all working-bodied men in particular have the opportunity to labor and to be paid for their labor. And I always like to remind people uh, that that's actually what the Republican Party was about. He's the first Republican president. And the Republican Party, as Eric Foner and others have written about brilliantly, is about free labor, free soil, and free men. And that's, that's really, really important. And when we think about this idea of free labor and free soil and free men, um, how does the end of slavery make that both something that um, can come true in the context of Reconstruction, but certain groups are going to be fearful of that right. as well. Right. Well, I think there are a couple of elements of this. I think, first of all, Lincoln is, is, is more aspirational 
that anything, it's not simply if he had lived that he might have figured this out. These are really big problems, and they're problems that it takes another hundred years till we get to Lyndon Johnson for them to be at least worked out to a level that gets us beyond some of the grave limitations of, of Reconstruction, I think. But there's also another element to it, which is that the presumption Lincoln has is that there will always be enough resources, enough of a market for everyone to have an opportunity. And we know well, even those of us who think capitalism sometimes can work, uh, that uh, there are limitations. Capitalism is a is a problematic system. It might be the best system we have, but it's a very problematic system. And wants always exceed resources. And there is a tendency, even when you get uh, out of slave conditions, mm-hmm. for people to want to exploit labor to maximize profit. And, and I think that's a flaw in Lincoln's thinking. I mean, one, one of the points here is those who have advanced our society from the office of the presidency or any other office have done it not with perfection. They've done it with their own flaws. And I think what's fascinating about the history is that we layer the experiences on each other. And so the accomplishments of one generation create a new set of challenges for the next generation. And when you think about next generation, your, your portrait of Theodore Roosevelt is very interesting because when you think about somebody like Teddy Roosevelt... He inherits certain aspects of the progressive tradition of the Republican Party. When you think about the environment, when you think about antitrust, when you think about TR as this progressive. But then it seems that even as early as 1901, when Theodore Roosevelt becomes president after McKinley's assassination, the anti-slavery, anti-racist basis of the Republican Party has really been diminished. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think actually the Theodore Roosevelt's credit, he sees that and he's not always on board with that. He sometimes um, accommodates himself to it for a variety of political reasons. Uh, but if you compare him to Woodrow Wilson, for example, Theodore Roosevelt or to Robert uh, William Howard Taft, mm-hmm. uh, Theodore Roosevelt is much more progressive and much more aggressive uh, on these issues. Uh, but there's also no doubt um, that there is a conservative side to Theodore Roosevelt as well. He's a believer in progressive change, but he's a believer that progressive change has to be led by the right people. Mm-hmm. So he wants to bring along uh, black folk and Jews and women, but he does envision men like himself mm-hmm. at the front. He has what many historians have written about with regard to progressivism. He has a reformist agenda, but it's an elite-driven reformist agenda. And that creates a lot of tensions even within his community of people like Jane Addams and others who, who are not always on, on board with that. And what about the progressive era and sort of social Darwinism and race yeah. and eugenics? There's and- a lot of that. Uh, I, I think uh, for Theodore Roosevelt, he thought, and I, I try to write about this in the book, in terms of civilizations. Mm-hmm. So there's a racial component to it, but he thought in terms of a broader cultural milieu. And for him, and this maybe echoes Jefferson, actually, there's the sense that that race is not destiny, but race creates certain biases. And he sees a certain uplifting role for education, for the environment. One of the reasons he was committed to creating national parks was he thought that poor inner city kids had to have the opportunity to get out of the city. So the fresh air fund, even early 20th century. Experience fresh air, experience the wonders of nature, the freedom. Again, there's a Frederick Jackson Turner element to this. Get out on the frontier, become free, get away from all these institutions that are making you dependent. So he saw, as Jefferson did for the Indians, he saw the opportunity for uplift in a Booker T. Washington sort of way. Uh, But he saw that very much as structured and led by people like himself. Now, Roosevelt meets Booker T. Washington twice in the White House. When we think about somebody like Woodrow Wilson, and I'd like you to talk about this briefly, it seems to me like Wilson um, starts doing something very, very new and forceful 
as a president, you know, especially post Lincoln and post emancipation. What does Woodrow Wilson do in terms of in terms of race politics and the federal government and birth of a nation? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and Spike Lee's recent movie, I think, wonderfully captures this. Black Uh, Klansman. Yeah. Black Klansman. He he, he appropriately brings us right back to this to this moment. Um, uh, The thing I always remind people about Woodrow Wilson is uh, he's the first Southern president since Zachary Taylor. There had not been a Southerner in in the office uh, since the 1840s. And uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, really sees the office of the presidency as empowering local communities. He's a states' rights guy. And uh, he believes in things like the Federal Reserve, which will provide a regulatory mechanism for allowing the states then to operate. But he is uh, very much against uh, external forces coming into local communities, and that reflects his own experience. This is also how you have to understand his foreign policy. Mm -hmm. When I talk about Wilson as a foreign policy leader, I think people often get him wrong because they read his words and don't understand the context. You see, Mm -hmm. the reason we study history is to know what the words meant in their time. Mm -hmm. When he talks about self-determination, he's not saying all people have a right to their own nation and they should be. He doesn't believe in that at all. He believes that there should not be external actors coming in to organize civil civilized communities and telling them what to do. Mm. But that excludes people who are not quote unquote civilized in his terms. So he's very much about what he calls the new freedom, which is about allowing local communities. Uh, Birth of a nation, uh, a lot of the racialization and the resegregation of the the civil service that occur Mm -hmm. under Woodrow Wilson are his efforts to say, we're going to stop trying to impose an external ideology on parts of the country that think differently. And it's, of course, not surprising, Peniel, that during this very moment of Wilson's presidency, that's when we start to see Confederate monuments built all over the place. It's, It's a reaffirmation of uh, the right of local communities to get help from the national government to avoid having to follow uh, policies they don't agree with. So it's this restoration of white supremacy. And I'd say Wilson is really the grand marshal, much more so than even um, Theodore Roosevelt in a way. Oh, much. I, yeah. I don't, Theodore Roosevelt yeah. is not comfortable with this yeah. at all. He will sometimes, for his own ambitious reasons, play to the prejudices of certain groups, and he has his own prejudices. Uh, but, but Theodore Roosevelt is a progressive in the sense that he believes that if you give all groups the right opportunity, they can, they can move their way up. Wilson sees a much more hierarchical world. And so by the time we get to the New Deal and you talk about FDR, what is FDR's role? And he's president for 12 years, World War II, um, the New Deal, Social Security, yeah. you know, all these things. What's his role in terms of race, especially considering that civil rights activists wanted an anti-lynching bill? That's right. That's never passed. That's right. And what's, I think one of the ironies of the New Deal uh, for historians is the fact that this New Deal comes about under the banner of this Democratic president. Yes, who, when we think about the Democratic Party, historically, like you were just reminding us, Wilson's the first Southerner yeah. who's, who's, who's president um, since um, Zachary Taylor, or I guess um, Andrew Johnson was from Tennessee. That's a border state. But a border state. Yeah. Um, so how did this occur? Both, yeah. both, you know, what is FDR's role, but then how does this occur in the Democratic right. Party? Right, and, and uh, FDR, uh, as a Democrat, is actually able to do things that TR as a Republican couldn't do. And Ira Katznelson's work is really helpful on this too, right? Uh, what FDR is able to do is try to pull Southern Democrats along. The real impediment 
to um, more progress on race issues. And the real support for Wilson's white supremacy, as you put it, uh, is actually coming from Southern Democrats, uh, the Democrats who control states like Texas mm-hmm. and Georgia. Wow. Uh, and uh, FDR is not fully on board with them. They're not his choice uh, for president, but he's able, as Lyndon Johnson will a generation a- later, he's able because he's within the same party to do things for them. Right, uh, both FDR and Lyndon Johnson, I think, subscribe to the the, the Louis the Fourteenth principle. Right, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Right, <laughs> and uh, FDR uses the New Deal precisely for that. It's a brilliant way uh, of giving everyone something. So he literally buys off the Southern Democrats uh, and puts together a coalition of African Americans and others, bringing them over to the Democratic Party by offering them institutional uh, spaces to operate. In mm-hmm. that they didn't have before. I think of Jacob Lawrence's artwork, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through the public works programs, through the arts programs of the New Deal uh, sponsors, so many writers, writers so many project, artists, exactly. Project, yes. Right, get get involved. They get an opportunity as a consequence uh, through uh, the Works Progress Administration. Much more is done in white communities, but there's construction in black communities as well, in minority communities around the country. They get a hold. They get an anchoring in society. And Roosevelt's vision is that to get out of the depression, all groups need to feel reconnected uh, to the American dream, and the president is going to help make that possible. So if Washington is the uniter and Lincoln is the opportunity provider, uh, really what what Roosevelt is doing is creating a web of connections. Uh, And that's why uh, social scientists like Bob Putnam and others will point out that there's this moment mid-20th century when Americans are more connected than they've ever been before. They're segregated. So it's not that uh, African-Americans and whites are going to the same Rotary Club meetings. No way. But it's that African-Americans are now more connected to other African-Americans. And whites are more connected to other whites. And Italians are more connected to other Italians. And those connections are exactly what the New Deal is about, making people feel anchored to their communities. And it's interesting to me, Peniel, that community is a word that presidents and major politicians use throughout the mid-20th century. And then in our free market obsessions... By the 1970s, it sort of falls out. And w- when you think about Roosevelt and even Truman, what about the relationship between these presidents and the civil rights movement? Because mm-hmm. basically what the federal government does set up is two-tiered liberalism. Yes. Basically one where blacks have access to uh, lesser resources, another where whites have access to more resources, the creation of the white yes. middle class, yes. wealth through home ownership, yep. all these different things. But what's the relationship between these presidents and the civil rights movement, especially since Eisenhower doesn't have much of a relationship, right. yet we, we think about Truman in the 1948 Democratic platform, Absolutely. civil rights. Yep, yep, um, yep. We think about Hubert Humphrey and the mayor, yep. you know, Minnesota, sure. just saying, Absolutely. you know, you know we're, we're going to be civil rights champions. Um, so what is that relationship? Right. I, I think we have to think of Roosevelt and Truman in, in different ways on this. I think for Roosevelt, it is very much about, uh, I think, self-consciously a two-tiered system. Uh, and for him, both tiers, this is the way Roosevelt thought about it, right? Both tiers are going to feel like they're doing better. They're going to get help, right? So, uh, under the prodding of A. Philip Randolph, right, he actually requires uh, anti-discrimination measures in federal production facilities and federal factories, Absolutely. and that's almost everything during World War mm-hmm. II, right? Um, he will push for more resources for African-American communities, but always less than white communities. And if you look at the political map, uh, again, those Southern Democrats are always going to get a disproportionate share. Um, and so it's a way of getting buy-in. It also mm-hmm. plays, of course, to his own prejudices. But his view is that everyone is going to feel more connected and be better off as a consequence. And statistically, that is what happens, right? 
Um, so it's an unequal system, but it's a system of rising opportunities and uh, f- for those in various different groups. Harry Truman, I think, has, has a different approach. Uh, first of all, he doesn't understand what Roosevelt's doing. This is an important point, right? Roosevelt and Truman do not have a close relationship. It's nothing like president and vice president uh, today. Um, Truman was there on the ticket uh, when Roosevelt ran for his fourth term because um, it, it made sense politically. And he never wanted to take Wallace off the ticket. He wanted Wallace off the ticket. And, and Roosevelt really wanted Jimmy Burns. And it's interesting that Jimmy Burns from South Carolina was not acceptable because he was an arch segregationist. And that was not acceptable to the African-American parts of Roosevelt's coalition. Truman had his own racial prejudices. You see this in his letters and various things. But he was not publicly known for that. He was from Missouri, where it was at least less of a public issue than it was in South Carolina. Um, and so for Truman, the civil rights issue is a different one because after the war, in part because of what Roosevelt's done, but largely because of what African-Americans have done serving in the war. Mm -hmm. They come back and are a much more powerful voice within American society. And Truman is a much more precarious Democrat than FDR was. So Truman's got to do a lot of work in the lead up to the 48 election, which most people think he's going to lose, to actually win people back to his coalition. It is similar I think, actually, to Democratic nominees today. They've got to think, they're not worried, Democratic nominees in 2019, 2020, that African-Americans are going to go vote for Trump. They're worried that they're not going to show up for them, as they didn't show up for Hillary in the same numbers. It's the same problem Truman has. Can he get those communities that voted for the first time they ever voted for a Democrat to vote for Roosevelt? Uh, And many people think they just voted for Franklin Roosevelt, not for the Democratic Party. Mm. Can he get them to vote for him? And so his campaign advisors and various others say to him, no, you need to really make this more of a prominent issue. And for Truman, the more politically he has to do it, the more he actually starts to come to believe in himself. He starts to see the value in it. Now, I want to talk about um, LBJ. Yeah. But I want to contrast um, LBJ with Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, because I think one of the things that the American public... Um, especially retrospectively, still hasn't grappled with is how does um, Lyndon Baines Johnson win 44 states in 1964 and less than four years later decides not to run for president and Richard Nixon wins by less than 2%. But then Nixon's win starting in 1968 really ushers in, um, in five of the next six elections, uh, Republican ascendancy um, in the White House and, and really... Uh, very much retrograde views on race and racial justice and civil rights in the aftermath of that civil rights revolution. So one, LBJ and his sort of outsized role in the movement, um, uh, civil rights, racial justice, and just about five years as president. But then two, um, the response to that in in terms of the Nixon-Reagan access, that really also shapes the Clinton administration and shapes the Obama administration, too. Right. So in some ways, uh, for my book uh, and my my thinking about this, uh, Lyndon Johnson's a real fulcrum. So is Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Because Lyndon Johnson is a manifestation of the possible presidency, right? The imperial presidency, as Arthur Schlesinger referred to it. In many ways, my book is in dialogue with this older uh, generation of scholarship, Arthur Schlesinger and others who are writing in the shadow of Nixon, right? We're writing in the shadow of uh, Obama and Trump. Uh, This earlier generation was writing in the shadow of Nixon right after the period you described. And uh, Lyndon Johnson uses the presidency personally 
to push through things that would not have been possible without a very forceful, sometimes even constitutionally questionable presidency. Uh, and that's even to the point of browbeating people like George Wallace and others, uh, not to convince them to do different things, but to threaten and bully them uh, to not do the things he doesn't want them to do. But he also tries that, of course, with civil rights leaders. And his relationship with Martin Luther King is, of course, a very complex relationship. You know that better than anyone else. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is committed to being the second Franklin Roosevelt. That's every day on his mind. Uh, Roosevelt is his hero. He wants to be even bigger and better than Roosevelt. And he uses the office with regard to civil rights to push forth what he sees as a permanent set of markers that will make African Americans still not equal. I don't think he believes in equality either, but much more an active part of American society with more of a stake in American society with better living conditions. I think he cares about poverty, Johnson does, Mm -hmm. as probably no president since Roosevelt had. Uh, And he cares about uh, racial justice. But that's different from saying that he actually views us moving to a society of equality. I think that still takes another another generation. Um, but he's also Lyndon Johnson, therefore, the, the moment when the office becomes impossible because he takes this on personally as he also takes on Vietnam. Mm. Right. As he also takes on what he sees as as a role of dealing with poverty for white folks as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, education. He takes on everything healthcare. in his office. Healthcare. Right. He takes on all of these issues. And I think that's part of the answer. It's part of the tragedy in what makes Nixon and Reagan and all this retrograde work on race issues thereafter, because taking on all these issues, uh, he makes a lot of enemies, of course, but also he encounters a lot of failures, especially in Vietnam. Mm-hmm that are then used to discredit his other advances. And this is part of the story. Great Society. Exactly. Uh, And so much of the rhetoric about the Great Society in the 1970s is a rhetoric about crime and a rhetoric about communists, neither of which the Great Society really has anything to do with. And and if anything, the Great Society reduces crime. If anything, the Great Society uh, is about getting us beyond this McCarthyite view of the world. But because he's taking on too much... He discredits the, the things he does so well. And, and that's the tragedy of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that if in 1965 or 1966, Lyndon Johnson had had the gumption, which is only obvious now to say he should have done, but to say, you know, um, this Vietnam is not working out. I want to declare victory and leave. That's, mm-hmm. that's the strategy Senator Aiken suggests to him. He says, just, just declare victory, Lyndon, and leave. Mm-hmm. If he had done that, it would have been much harder for us to see the kind of backlash we saw afterwards. There's always a tendency, once you move forward, to then have a backlash occur. But Johnson's impossibilities, taking on so much, empowers it empowers those who uh, wish to uh, pull things in the other direction. And how do Nixon and Reagan, especially their use of um, racial code words, yeah. their, their, their notion of citizenship, yep. their notion yeah. of racial justice? They exploit this. Uh, Nixon most explicitly, and uh, many, Rick Perlstein and others have written about this. I've tried to write about it. You've written about it. Uh, Nixon is very self-conscious of the fact that he can use racial code words to explain not simply that people feel uncomfortable now with having African Americans in the dining room with them, but also to explain why we lost in Vietnam. 
Right. I mean, the 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 African American um, the 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 African American male who's depicted in 1971 as a criminal, mm-hmm. as a drug addict, mm-hmm. doing all these horrible things, becomes an explanation for all of our problems. Uh, and as we see problems of low morale in the military, well, that must be because we have minorities there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The the notion that we as a society have grown weak, that we as a society have allowed the wrong people to control our communities and come into our communities, that's broader than just an argument about race. Home. That's an argument for an explanation for many yeah. challenges we face around the world, and this is always the case. We're in that same moment today mm-hmm. uh, when we're talking about immigration. We're not just talking about immigration. Trump is trying to make an argument: make America great. Well, all these problems we have in the world, all this foreign competition, somehow it's because there are all these dark people now who are in our society. Uh, Nixon is playing to that, and and I often uh, will, for students, play some of the political advertisements for the time, and it's it, it's evident. It's evident in those. It's, it's evident in, in what Hollywood is doing, which is where Reagan comes out of, right? I mean, the the um, James Bond film from the early 1970s, right? It's set in the Caribbean. And the problem is a terrorist group of uh, black power activists who have gone to the Caribbean and are working with Spectre to under, undermine the United States. Uh, this is not just fantasy, right? This is, this is a, a discourse about race and power in American society. Ronald Reagan very self-consciously avoids the, uh, shall we say, the more um, brutal and harsh elements of Nixon's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But he plays to a lot of that as well. One of his first campaign speeches in 1980 is in Neshoba. Uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi. Philadelphia, Mississippi. He goes to the to a spot of one of the worst uh, crimes against uh, civil rights activists, Mm -hmm. never mentions them and talks about states' rights uh, to an audience of uh, white supremacists. Who understand what the message is. Absolutely. Yeah. And as, and, and as Joe Crespino has written, uh, it's not just uh, what Reagan says, it's what he doesn't say. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he is on the site of one of the worst uh, civil rights crimes mm-hmm. in our history and doesn't even mention it. And so when we think about Reagan, how does that lead to, especially... Um, this idea of racial justice within the context of the Democratic Party, which is now by the 90s, when you think about Clinton and then I want to talk about Obama. But how does Reagan impact and frame how we talk about racial justice moving forward? Because Reagan is such an important presidency. Yeah. yeah. So I think if Nixon plays to the worst racial impulses or racist impulses, uh, Reagan's uh, approach and lasting legacy is a slightly different one. Um, there is a sort of racialized element to his le- rhetoric, obviously, but it's more his delegitimizing the role of the federal government. Mm. And that's the legacy we're really dealing with now with the backtracking on uh, voter access and federal oversight over mm-hmm. that, for example. right? One of the big outcomes of the 1960s, building on FDR's legacy, but really pushed forth by Lyndon Johnson, is the federal government coming in and taking strong measures, not just the Supreme Court, the president, the executive branch of government through mm-hmm. the Justice Department, mm-hmm. coming in and assuring the kinds of access for African-Americans and other minorities that was not there during Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. In a sense, the Union Army's back, yes. but they're guys from the Justice Department in gals wearing suits. Yeah. Right? As you, as federal marshals. Precisely. It's Right. Nicholas to Katzenbach and people of that sort. Right? Robert Kennedy. 
right? Uh, and and so they are playing this very important role. Reagan uh, delegitimizes that, and again, it's part of a broader international argument, right? We've gone wrong in Vietnam, we've gone wrong in Iran, and all these places because we're letting this big bureaucracy make decisions mm-hmm. rather than the right people. Let's get the bureaucracy out of the way and let's empower the right people to make decisions. Let's make our society more free market focused, um, and that means, as Reagan says from the very start, that government is the problem, not the solution. Well, the historical record is just the opposite, right? Uh, the, the, only, the, the, the solution to these problems, if there's been a solution, it's actually creative and effective use of government resources. So as you pull that back. And we go back to Reconstruction and the Civil War and your, 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 your analysis of Abraham Lincoln and right. what Lincoln did. The, the federal government is the solution. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and so this, this delegitimizing of the role of the federal gov- government is really important. It shows up, by the way, with Reagan, and I try to talk about this in detail, not just with regard to race, but with regard to the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is often what gets forgotten in uh, discussions of, of the Reagan years. Uh, Reagan intentionally prohibits the federal government from helping. Mm. prohibits the Surgeon General from doing more. It's not simply the aid that isn't provided. It's his unwillingness to talk about it, Mm. his unwillingness to provide uh, encouragement and support for institutions that are helping people. It's sort of like today when we have federal officials uh, attacking groups like Planned Parenthood and others. And I'm not talking about abortion. Planned Parenthood provides basic women's health care for people in poor rural communities where Mm -hmm. they don't have hospitals. Mm -hmm. You start attacking that, as Reagan attacks those who are actually providing uh, AIDS treatment for various uh, very, various ways, uh, and you're attacking the basic support networks that disproportionately help those from disadvantaged uh, communities. And that is one of the biggest and enduring legacies of an attack on government. And it's exactly what I mean by the impossible presidency, because the office now has started to disempower because the office feels overloaded, because mm-hmm. presidents want to actually focus on a few programs. They feel overloaded in their responsibilities. So what happens? They pull back resources from those who need those resources most. When you think about the Obama presidency, um, because we're in the midst of the of of POTUS forty five now, but um, how does the Obama presidency, you know, really stack up vis a vis your thesis, both in in terms of racial justice, but also just the entire presidency? Because he's a war presidency, so in a lot of ways, I think about Obama, I think about Lincoln, yeah, yeah I think yeah. about LBJ because yeah. of the Affordable Care Act, um, I think about Roosevelt, yeah, because of the Great Recession. Absolutely, so I think about all these different Absolutely. iconic presidents which yeah. you cover in your and, book. And it's interesting because, uh, as, again, as you know better than anyone, Obama is self-conscious of this. Uh, he spends the couple of uh, months after the election, before he's inaugurated, reading all about Franklin Roosevelt, right? Talking to historians, right? Asking us, you know, what did he do in his in his famous hundred days? What can I do? Um, but it's different for Obama because uh, the office now has inherited all of these responsibilities as well as all of these limitations. Uh, I conceived of the book really during the Obama presidency. Here we have a man of enormous talent, a man who's progressive, but also a true pragmatist, Right. If there's someone who should have figured out how to get people to work together, it was Obama. I mean, he's always been. You, you, you've written about this. He's always been the one who got people to work together. Absolutely. Right. He becomes editor of the Harvard Law Review because he's the only one who can get the different factions to work together. He is not a rabble rouser. He's not a brick thrower. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a guy who gets things done. Right. And uh, he's inherited an office, though that is truly impossible. I mean, he goes and gives a speech in Egypt talking about racial reconciliation and religious reconciliation. And all of a sudden, he's got the entire Israeli lobby and much of the Jewish lobby in the United States against him. 
saying all kinds of racist stuff about him that then undermines his active his efforts to get uh, members of Congress on board with the Affordable Care Act, mm. right? And all of a sudden, when he has to push forth the Affordable Care Act, he's made all these enemies now, uh, pharmaceutical companies and others who are going to work against him in other areas. Obama suffered, I think, from having the the challenges other presidents had, but having so many of them at one time and so many organized interests working against him when he came into office. That's not to say he didn't make some missteps, but it is to say he had a big agenda, but a much, much bigger set of impediments to what he wanted to do. And of course, one of the impediments comes from him also being an African-American in office. I think where he succeeded, uh, Obama did, is in finding a few signature initiatives Mm -hmm. that he could push through just barely get them over the finish line, like the Affordable Care Act, Mm -hmm. which now uh, more than two years into the Trump presidency is still there. Mm -hmm. And now more and more governors after the 2018 election are uh, getting their states more involved with the Affordable Care Act. It's wonderful that John Kasich, Republican of Ohio, right, is now an advocate of the Affordable Care Act in part. Unbelievable. I was just lecturing in South Carolina last week and people told me, uh, yeah, we like the Affordable Care Act. We don't like Obamacare. That, that's okay, right? Yeah. It's the Affordable Care Act. He, he got that through. That's an enduring achievement. Um, so his 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 success was recognizing at certain moments he had to push particular things. He couldn't get everything. His failure, I think, was when he did make progress, sometimes still holding himself back and trying to bring people on board when he wasn't going to get them on board. The Affordable Care Act is a major achievement, but he could have gotten even more. Uh, and he would have had no more opposition. He felt that actually trying to find this compromise, even though he didn't get a single Republican vote, uh, that he would still uh, get more support from Republicans down the line. He should have gone for even more with just the Democratic votes. Um, At a certain level, he underrated the degree of the opposition Mm -hmm. and underrated the need to really choose your priorities. That's the takeaway from my book. The office is impossible because you're trying to do too many things. Pick a few things and do them well. My last question is about the current president. Um, the journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates has called him America's first white president um, in a really uh, searing essay yes. in Atlantic um, and really looking at the way in which Trump won with the rhetoric that was anti-immigrant, that's anti-black, that demeans women, um, but certainly that talks about sort of white privilege and white advantage is a good thing. Make America great as a slogan that says, let's go back to the ante, not even 1950s Eisenhower segregation, but really almost antebellum America, Andrew Jackson's America. Um, But I think it's also shown us the last two years, what you talk about in your book about the presidency and the impossibility of this, this, this title. Um, So what do we think? What do you think two years into this, uh, presidency about your thesis and what is the future yeah. of of this office? Because it yeah. does seem to be this impossible office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Trump, uh, I think, as Tahishi Coates and others have written, as you've written in many pieces too, he he uh, finds a visceral way to appeal to the worst uh, the worst instincts of many uh, many citizens who who we have to empathize with, too, who feel they're losing their status. I mean, I really do think the work of Richard Hofstetter that we've criticized for so long really comes back here, status anxiety. These are not people who are necessarily doing well, but they're people who think they have a certain status in their communities, and now they feel threatened by all these uh, people who don't look like them, who are out-competing them for spots in universities, out-competing them for jobs. 
uh, just because they're working harder and they have other skills. And he appeals to that, that sense of resentment. Uh, he's not going to make your life better, but he's going to bring the other people down to your level. <laughs> right? And unfortunately, this is, this is appealing to people. And it's not unique. Nixon plays that game to some extent as well. Certainly, as you said, Andrew Jackson played, played that game. Many, many presidents have. Um, but right now, that doesn't move the ball forward at all. He has been remarkably unsuccessful in getting almost anything done as a legislative leader. Uh, he got through a change in the tax code that is one of the most unpopular changes in the tax code ever. Uh, he got almost no legislation through. He's angry now. He's not getting his wall. Well, for two years, he had a Republican-controlled Congress, and he couldn't get his wall then. Um, the office is impossible for someone who spends their time simply appealing to the worst instincts of an organized group of Americans and doesn't actually figure out a way to get this complex machinery to work together. The future of the office is not going to be fixed by finding the savior, the anti-Trump savior. It's actually going to be fixed by what I think we're starting to see right now, which is members of Congress and other branches stepping in and saying, no, this office has grown too large. There's too much the president is trying to do and not getting it achieved, and we have to go back to a true divided government, uh, which will actually work better when Congress plays plays its role. Uh, the president should not, the founders never expected, and it is not in the interest of a functioning presidency for the president to ever shut down the government. Uh, all appropriations should lie with Congress. That should not be a, a presidential prerogative. Uh, in any way, war making should not only be owned by by the president. Congress should play a role in that. So the fix is actually what I think we're beginning to see. Not because we have great Democratic candidates as alternatives, we might, but because other branches of government, other parts of our society are waking up and seeing that democracy functions when no one part of it takes on a dictatorial role. Uh, it functions in a pluralistic way. And our best presidents, I try to show this, the Lincolns and the Roosevelts, they figure out a way to use the office to encourage pluralism, right? FDR is not telling local communities what to do, right? He's providing them the resources to engage African-Americans and immigrants and others. Lyndon Johnson, same thing. And that's, that's the direction in which the office uh, has to go to empower communities, not to, not to dictate to communities. Okay, that'll be the last word. Uh, Jeremy Suri, thank you for joining us. His latest book is The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. And it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Peniel. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.